0: What I told him was that if I do this right, someone will watch this movie, and they will never forget you, and you will never be forgotten, which I understand was like a bold pitch.
1: That was Daniel Rohr talking about his 2023 DuPont award-winning documentary, Navalny. Welcome to On Assignment from Columbia Journalism School. I'm Abby Wright, Executive Director of Professional Prizes here joined today as always by my friend and colleague Lisa R. Cohen
2: who runs the DuPont Columbia Awards hello Lisa hey Abby so we're back after a break uh, we took some time off to host the 2023 DuPont Columbia Awards ceremony which was a smashing success if I do say so it really was and uh, Abby why don't you tell us about this silver baton winning documentary that Daniel Rohr made
1: Yes, indeed. Uh, It is called Navalny, and it is in fact about Alexei Navalny. He's Russia's most prominent opposition figure, and uh, the film brings us through the investigation of who poisoned him in Siberia in August of 2020. Tell
2: us a little bit about what happened.
1: So uh, Navalny had been in a city called Tomsk, and he was on his way back to Moscow, when he became very ill and the plane had to take an emergency landing, um, at which point uh, he was brought to hospital and then ultimately medevaced out to Germany, which saved his life.
2: This film picks up after that, and we watch as he teams up with a man named Christo Grozev, who is the head of an online forensic investigative team called Bellingcat and they are renowned for digging into these kinds of crimes and Christo in this case thinks that he has figured out what happened to Navalny and you know the drama ensues and we should mention that there's this pivotal scene um, that Daniel is going to talk about in this conversation and just set it up a little bit where Navalny calls the suspected assassins or several of them it's like this prank call. And there's this astonishing moment for everyone in the film, including Navalny, where one man is duped into revealing everything. So it's it's kind of like a Hollywood spy thriller, but it's all true. Right. And viewers are there as it's all
1: unfolding. It really is gripping. And Hollywood loved this film just as much as we did here at the DuPont Awards. It is an Oscar nominee. Right. And uh, this podcast episode is dropping just a few days before the Oscar ceremony Sunday evening. So we all have our fingers crossed for Daniel and his team. Um, and, of course, we have our fingers crossed for Alexei Navalny, who is in prison right now. Um, so as the Russians say, for good luck, tfut, fut fut. Fu.
2: Yes. So we had the ceremony on Monday, and on a Tuesday, uh, we screened the film for our students and the community, and Daniel was there to talk afterwards with Professor June Cross. She's the founder and the head of the doc program here at the J School, and she is a documentary filmmaker in her own right.
1: Yes, and June was also a member of the 2023 DuPont jury. So she was one of the people who evaluated this film for its DuPont worthiness, as it were. So let's go to the conversation now with Daniel Rohr, led by Professor June Cross, with some questions from our students, too, which are great. And just a quick note that this conversation is edited, and
3: there is some colorful language throughout. Welcome. Before we even start the sort of Q&A about how you did the film, what is the latest news about Alexei Navalny?
0: Um, The latest on Alexei Navalny is really, really shitty. It's bad news. Navalny right now is in a gulag about six and a half hours outside of Moscow. He is languishing in a solitary confinement cell. He is the only prisoner in the Russian penal system who is relegated to perpetual solitary confinement. And his health is deteriorating. The Russian penal system weaponizes other prisoners. They'll take a a prisoner with tuberculosis or the flu or COVID and place that individual in Navalny's very, very small cell. And then, of course, Navalny will come down with a fever. And then he will be denied access to his own doctors or civilian doctors. And instead, he will be uh, allowed to be treated by prison doctors, who will inject him and treat him with all sorts of um, uh, mystery substances. And, And for someone like Navalny, who already survived one assassination attempt, that is very, very nerve-wracking, I can imagine. But in spite of it, the man maintains um, his ironclad uh, humor and character and, and, and se- sense of levity. Um, and that's something that's incredibly heartening for me.
3: I noticed uh, today on Twitter, he was, was gallows humor. But he was talking about them serving his food with a slice of bread over the tea, which is a Russian funeral um ritual and serving him a certain kind of purge which is also a russian funeral ritual do you sense at all in the messages that you're getting that his spirit is flagging or does he remain this um perpetually funny guy that was in your film
0: well outwardly i have the same connection to alexei Navalny right now that the rest of the world does and that's via his Twitter feed and, and the very scant Instagram posts he can make and, and Twitter posts he can make, which sort of trickle out once a week by his lawyers. Um, and outwardly, he seems to be maintaining his spirit. But it's been a year and a half since he's seen his wife and children. It's been two years since he's been free. It's been seven months since he's been in solitary confinement, a particu- particularly torturous spot. So I don't really know how he's doing. I don't know what his interior life is like. I imagine the outward spirit is quite different from the internal monologue.
3: The interview that you did with him, talk about that for a while. Did I read somewhere that it was like hours?
0: Yeah, like 15 hours.
3: 15 hours of interview, and he sat through that. He was hole. a
0: good sport. So the interview was interesting because I didn't know how I would use it. When we were shooting the film and when I was thinking about it in my head, I was thinking about like a propulsive verite observational documentary. I didn't think it would have any interviews and I thought that would be the most compelling way to tell the story. But I also understood that I, I had access to this very, very important public figure, this very important politician and he, he was leaving and when when he was gone, we'd never get him back. And so why not just get the interview with them just to have it as an option? I like to have as many options as possible when you're shooting the movie, so I'm always thinking of what it could be when you're editing the movie. Um, And so I knew that I wanted to do this interview, and it wasn't until we started editing the film that we really had this eureka moment that this interview wants to be part of the movie in a much more significant way. Um, And uh, that was revelatory, and and Maya, one of the film's editors, showed me an iteration of the opening scene of the movie that she had come up with. Because it started, there was 1,001 opening scenes to this movie, but one of the ones was where Navalny's on the plane. Mm -hmm. And then she front-loaded that with an interview segment. Mm -hmm. And I was like, Maya, there's no fucking way we're opening this movie with an interview. Absolutely not. And. Your job is to have an open mind, and your job is to just consider every option. The film is God, the film knows what it wants, and you just have to be open to that. Mm -hmm. So I watched the sequence that she put together, and of course I heard my voice and I chafed at that, and I was like, that's super annoying, and that would piss me off if I was watching a movie. But his reaction to it, the question I ask him, where he just like rolls his eyes at me so they get stuck in the back of his head, and then he directs me. Okay, we're going, guys? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so Alexei, I want to talk about something that we we sort of touched on this morning, and you might hate this, but I really want you to think about it. If you are killed, if this does happen, what message do you leave behind to the Russian people?
2: Oh come on, Daniel! No, no way. It's like you're making movie for the case of my death. Like. Again, I'm, I'm ready to answer your question. But please let me, let it be uh, another movie, movie number two. Like, let, let's make a thriller out of this movie and in the case I would be killed, let's make a boring movie of
0: memory. He rolls eyes, he says, oh no, Daniel, no, Jesus Christ. Like, we're making thriller movie now and boring memorial movie you do later. And that was an introduction to both his character and, and the sort of meta-narrative of the movie of like who's directing who. I'm making a film about a master politician and the film starts with him directing me. And that's a tension that we sort of return to and that reverberates throughout mm-hmm. the movie.
3: Yeah. Talk about the first time you met him.
0: Uh, the first time I met Alexei was in November of 2020. I was with Crystal Grozev. Uh, we were working on a completely different other film project. Often, when you make documentaries, in my experience, you start making one film and then you uh, go down a completely different rabbit hole. So, my colleagues and I, uh, including Melanie Miller and Diane Becker, who are sitting right over there, the two producers of navalny guys, stand up or yeah. wave or something. Let's get a clap. Mm-hmm. Along with our other colleague Odessa Ray and Shane Boris, we were making a different film, and that film turned into uh, a, a different movie. So now we're two movies down the rabbit hole. And movie number two took us to Ukraine. Christo and I and Odessa were in Kiev. And this was October 2020. And we were very, very, very assertively encouraged to leave that country immediately, um, which sometimes happens when you're running around with Christo and he's dealing with spies and secret uh, uh, um, you know, military intelligence matters. And so we found ourselves in Vienna. I didn't have a film to make in the middle of the pandemic. And that's when Jill came to to us one day and he said, I think I have something else you might be interested in that might be a good movie. And here I was two movies down the documentary rabbit hole feeling very anxious about things. And he said, you know, that Navalny guy, I think I have a lead in who tried to poison him. Um, And Christo, as you saw in the film, reached out to Alexei, and a week later we were sneaking across the German-Austrian border to go and, for me, pitch Navalny on a documentary project. And that first conversation, um, I I was introduced to both Alexei and Maria Pepchik, his chief investigator who you meet in the film, who essentially functions as as, uh, an investigative journalist but does a whole lot more than that. I met the two of them, And it was immediately clear that they had their good cop, bad cop shtick, where Navalny was sort of jovial and and engaging, and Maria was scary (laughs) and the gatekeeper. And in that first discussion, within 10 minutes, I sized up only as someone who, extraordinarily charismatic, um, very talented communicator um, he has this quality that, that is often ascribed to to master politicians that he makes you feel in a brief encounter uh, unique and seen and heard and all of these things so within 20 minutes you're like oh this guy could be the president yeah. but this poses a unique challenge to me because here I am wanting to make a very critical discerning film about this politician um, and so it was very important that in spite of his character and his charisma, and our natural sort of, uh, we got hit it off right out of the gate and we became buds sort of immediately.
3: Sympatico, yeah, immediately. we had.
0: And I think that that simpatico is, is, is in the film. Uh, people are often surprised when they watch the film and they realize that it's sort of a dark comedy, it's a funny movie. He's a funny guy, and we bonded over our shared sense of humor. And within 10 minutes, he was taking the piss out of me, and vice versa. But Maria was not. She wasn't part of that, and she was very discerning, and it was her job to be discerning and to keep away people who would wish them ill, which I understand, Um, but thankfully, we were able to make it work, and we started filming soon thereafter.
3: Well, who was funding you all this time? going down all these rabbit holes.
0: Yeah, so, so various funders for various rabbit holes, but the Navalny rabbit hole specifically uh, was put on credit cards, primarily one of the film's producers, and a little bit uh, my own. But we just understood that this was such an extraordinary situation. Here is this guy who had just survived this assassination attempt, who is still recovering, still in witness protection, doing his physiotherapy before he pledged to fly back to Russia. So what I saw in front of me was a documentary with the gravest stakes, gigantic geopolitical consequences, and most importantly for a film director, a beginning, a middle, and a natural end. And this is what documentary dreams are made of. Um, And so it was up to us to just not fuck it up.
3: So you got to him through Chris. So Christo. isn't Christo.
0: Christo uh, was, it, it sort of had his niche with Bellingcat as the Russian poisoning guy. And when he reached out to Navalny, he is quite plausibly the only person in the world who could have reached out to Alexei and said, I think I have a lead into who tried to poison you. And that insane idea or statement would have been treated with rationality. And Navalny said, okay, well, let's talk. And this is because of Christo's work with the Skripal investigation, this was sort of his thing. His beat was like, if Russia, if Putin goes and tries to poison someone with Novichok, Christo's on it. And so it was quite natural that that Alexei would be receptive to this reach out from Christo, and um, that's how we were able to go meet with him. We were fully riding on his coattails. Christo's, Christo's
3: yeah. access. Wow. Um, how did you negotiate with him? I, what What was the pitch?
0: So the the pitch that I gave to him, I, I tried to 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 understand that that. This guy is a master politician, and he is a master media strategist. He doesn't need our help getting his message out, right? He has his YouTube, his Instagram, his Twitter, which reaches tens of millions of people, hundreds of millions of people in Russia, and then many, many more millions internationally as this big public figure. So what can I offer him? Well, we understood that he was going back to Russia. He had made that clear. We understood that he would more than likely be arrested when he went back. So what I had on tap was cinema. Mm-hmm. It's very different than YouTube. The difference between a YouTube video and cinema, there are a few of them, but the primary ones that I pitched was that a you make a YouTube video and it's released in, you know, a week and then a million people watch it and then it is relegated into the, you know, the dustbin of YouTube algorithms and no one ever sees it. This sort of thing. Mm-hmm. But a film is on a time delay. If you want to make a documentary, it doesn't take a week, it takes a year or two years. And so if you need some sort of vehicle, some sort of device to keep your plate, your story, your name in the global consciousness, a documentary done right would really offer that. It would be a very, very strong asset to brand Navalny if he were to be languishing in prison. So that was the first thing. And the second thing I offered him is that cinema is different than YouTube insofar as that when you watch a YouTube video, you get information or exposition or so on and so forth, but when you watch a film, if it's done right, you feel it. I deal in a currency of emotion and feeling, and that's where I'm, I'm most primarily interested in. And to Navalny, I think the second part of that pitch was a little too artsy-fartsy for him. <laughs> he didn't understand this thing about emotion and making people feel something, but what I told him was that if I do this right, someone will watch this movie, and they will never forget you. And you will never be forgotten. Hmm. Which I understand was like a bold pitch. Um, it
3: seemed like he had the kind of ego that
0: yeah, it, responded to he's it. Like, he's sort of a rock star, Yeah, um, and I understood that. And I think that this is threaded, this idea is threaded into the DNA of the film. But from the be- very beginning, my mind was oriented towards the question, how is this guy weaponizing me? How am I part of his political brinkmanship? Because obviously he's a politician. He is making everything he does is political. Every, every decision he makes is a political calculation. So how am I factored into that algorithm? And uh, he wanted this utility, this tool, right. to keep his plight and his name in the global consciousness.
3: And that very easily can become propaganda. So how, how did you, as a filmmaker, walk that fine line?
0: So it started in our first conversation, when he and his team very astutely and, and obviously asked who would have editorial control over this movie. <laughs> and I said, we will. And then they said, they didn't know about this phrase, final cut. So they said, who has veto power? If there's something you want to put in the movie that we don't want to put in the movie, what do we do? And My speech was something along the lines of, there is the captain of a ship and the conductor of a symphony and the director of the film. And although we will make this film in the spirit of collaboration, and it's important to us that you like it, we will have final cut. And if there's something you don't like, and there's something that I want to put in the movie, and we are at that crossroads, we will go the way I dictate. And that was a really tough sell. Maria Pepczyk, who we meet in the film, has been managing brand Navalny for 10 years. And this guy walks in from out of the cold, quite literally, and is like, I gotta be in charge or else I'm not doing it. And I think Navalny appreciated the sort of chutzpah of that approach, but for other people on the team, it was a bit frightening, uh, which I appreciate. But I made it very clear that the film would not work if they had editorial oversight or final cut. It just, I, I couldn't do it. and. For whatever reason, in that snowy, cold, little village in Germany, Navalny agreed. And we started filming the next day.
3: There is a moment towards the end of the film where he says uh, he's been, uh, it's the day he's leaving to go back to Russia. And he says, I just told Danny to get the fuck out of here with his camera.
2: I apologize, I'm sorry for the record that just five minutes ago I told uh, Daniel to get the fuck out of here with his camera, so, like, I apologize for that, because, well, it's, well, everything is, like, everything is happening in the last 10 minutes, and I have to make, uh, like, a millions of emails, and, Lenny, have a seat, Maria, have a seat, just, you make me nervous, because you're standing on me. sorry.
3: what had happened
0: I'm glad you brought that up (laughs) so this is the last day of shooting with Alexei obviously he's about to fly back to Moscow to his uncertain fate there were a few options of what could possibly happen to him they were all bad and it's just ranged from pretty shitty to very shitty and so stress was high. I described being in that hotel room. It was like, you know, you were at a funeral or sitting Shiva or something. It just had this weight in the air. And before we started shooting, I was told to sit in the hallway, and, our one of the, and the producer of Odessa knocked on the door to get Navalny to sign a release form or something like this, some administrative thing. And He saw me there with my camera, and I wasn't holding it up shooting. I was like down at the floor. And that was the first moment that he lost it. He started screaming at me. He said, Daniel, get the fuck out of here. What the fuck? Don't you understand? I it. He was just, and I just sort of dissolved out of the room. And the door shut, and he was sitting there screaming at Odessa um, while I was in the hallway just waiting for him to calm down. And so I sat there for 20 more minutes. I understood that I had to be in the room that morning. Documentary making is, is, is really like you have to jostle with people. Because on one hand, you want to be respectful of them and their time and and this big moment, but your prerogative is to be in the room and get the access. And you you simultaneously don't want to annoy people, but you have to be completely, totally annoying and shameless with the camera and with the access. and, And it's a fine line. So I was sitting there and I was waiting for him to let me back in. And eventually I was waved in, and as I walked into the room, he said, I'm sorry, Daniel, for telling you to get the fuck out of here. About a week ago, two weeks ago, this film was nominated for an Academy Award, which is an astounding achievement, the likes of which I never could have possibly dreamed of. <laughs> but the, the only reason why I bring that, I, I mention that is in, in, in addition to me having to hear it a couple times a day or else I won't believe it, he sent us a little message. Mm-hmm. And I got three lines from Alexei and he has 30 minutes a day with his pen and paper, so to get any message from him is significant. And he said something like, good job, dude. You're a great director. Now everybody knows it. And I'm really sorry for yelling at you in that hotel in Berlin. <laughs> <laughs> and the thought that he was sitting there two years later, and he, that still was in his consciousness to me. Yeah. Uh, I got a kick out of that.
3: Yeah. How long did you film altogether?
0: Uh, door-to-door, first day of principal photography was probably November... 10th or 12th, maybe 14th, 2020. And the last day really was f- end of February. It was really tight. Yeah. I mean, there are films that take 10 years to make. Yeah. You know, this film was lightning in a bottle. There will never be another film like this. It Every day was a miracle. Uh, and we were in and out very quickly.
3: I, one of the most miraculous f- scenes I have seen in any film is that moment where he pranks... The people who poisoned him. Um, and uh, maybe you could talk about the process of doing that. Um, you're, you're exhaling. Are you tired of talking about it? I'll be
0: talking about that scene <laughs> to the day I die. Yeah.
3: <laughs> <laughs> you just exhaled.
0: <laughs> um, like, you don't you know, speak
3: Russian. I guess I used to say that you do not no, speak Russian. No, I don't speak any Russian. So describe, you're sitting there.
0: So the context of this, first and foremost, was like, navalny wants to call these guys up before they release this investigation and he wants to get them on the phone and talk to them about you know confront them or something and i was like that's stupid (laughs) (laughs) why would they why would why would anyone talk like that's this is navalny's political theater he's pulling a stunt and i thought it was a bit moronic Mm -hmm. but i was like okay well we'll shoot it because it might be a set piece for the movie you know my mantra is to shoot everything and decide later so we got our asses up at, at five in the morning, and we shot that scene, so it was like seven or eight a.m. in Russia, in Moscow, and we shot that scene, and we were shooting for an hour and a half before anything meaningful happened, and Navalny, at the beginning, as we saw in the film, would, would say, this is Navalny, why'd you try and poison me? And they'd hang up, and it was just a series of predictable hang ups. And then he decides to switch tactics and impersonate this high-ranking FSB guy. And the first time he did it, I, of course, clocked that the conversation was progressing, longer than any of the others had. And I was like, oh, that's kind of cool, but inevitably the guy hung up. And I was getting pretty sleepy, it was early in the morning, and I was thinking about the millions of things that I had to do that day. We had a long shoot day ahead of us. And that's when I noticed Maria's face. I watched as this woman, whose normal emotional range was mildly annoyed to very annoyed. (laughs) I watched as her jaw unhinges and hits the floor and she was clearly in a state of shock. And I remember a lightning bolt running up and down my spine. And I made sure we had enough battery in the camera, and I made sure there was enough space on the hard drives, and I just made sure everything was in focus because I knew exactly what was happening. I didn't speak a word of Russian, but you didn't have to. And it's pretty intuitive to know where to put the camera. And one detail from that morning that I remember, now that I think about it, Is that the first thing Maria did when this guy came on the phone was that she almost in disbelief as a reaction, as an as a reflex, took out her phone and started shooting. And I remember thinking to myself, we have like hundred thousand dollars worth of camera equipment capturing this. And she still has and and it was like, should I intervene? And should I tell her to put that away? But I had the tact to just sit there and keep shooting and not at all intervene, which is sometimes your instinct, but it's always best to not do that. And I'm so glad I made that decision, because the, having that sort of texture of her perspective, mm-hmm. of her camera that represents her disbelief, uh, to me, really makes that scene even more elevated.
3: And you used her footage as well, right? Oh, yeah, a lot of her footage. <laughs> her a footage was, her was the best footage, footage we, we, we got, got despite, the best, despite that was the best all the camera equipment. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, you also had to deal with uh, all the rest of the world media, CNN, Deutsche Spiegel, all these other. and the you, you allude to it, but I'm sure it was much more complicated. The process of releasing that story, and yet here you are the documentary filmmaker behind the scenes, and I know having had to deal with those kinds of situations, it can get very nerve-wracking dealing with other news organizations that want the exclusive for themselves. Was there any kind of tension between you and them and the volneys team during that whole process? Not
0: really. If anything, it felt collaborative, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I sort of frame our role as being elevated whilst all the news people and the journalists were jostling and rushing to get their story out, I was filming them, doing all that. That was part of our story and, and and last night someone asked me if I consider myself a journalist and I was like, oh, absolutely not. of course not. I was filming the journalists and that's a very different POB and a very different job than actually sitting in the chair and triangulating cell phone data and trying to figure out the movements of this poison squad. Um, uh, But they, I think the journalists, were kind of curious about what I was doing. Like we were shooting a lot with the CNN crew and I'd shoot for 10 hours. I just don't stop shooting. And when they do a live shot, it's four minutes or something. Clarissa Ward, the chief international. uh, um, Who also won last night. Who also won a DuPont last (laughs) night. Chief international correspondent, I guess, for CNN. She was part of it. And when we were shooting the film, I had a very brief encounter with Clarissa, but I was like shooting the movie, so I don't think she knew quite what to make of me or what I was doing. She knew that they were doing some sort of film project, but I don't think it really clicked in until she saw the, I think we sent her a rough cut or something, and she was like, cool. Oh. Oh."
3: (laughs) It's interesting that you don't consider yourself a journalist.
0: I really frame my job differently. Like I am more interested in emotion than fact. Mm -hmm. That freaks people out a bit. Uh, I'm more interested in cinema than journalism, um, and I think a lot about the difference between a journalist, a documentarian, and a filmmaker. I don't mind being called a documentarian, but first and foremost, I speak the language of cinema, and that's my currency, and that's what matters to me.
3: Talk about that a little bit more.
0: So, journalism, I don't think I have to define that for a room full of journalists. know what
3: that is, but yeah.
0: But documentary, <laughs> but cinema specifically, mm-hmm. I'm all about, like, how does it feel? How does it feel? What makes Uh, a a documentary idea cinema so often people come up to me and they tell me about their film project and I'll ask them what makes this explain to me why this is a documentary why this is a film and not a podcast right what do we see why is this visual what do I feel when I watch it these are sort of the questions that I'm more interested in as opposed to like the, the specific facts of when did this happen when did that happen or you know I have to edit this slightly to make it more dramatic like i will you know people sometimes chafe at that but for me it's all about the the movie
3: what did you edit in this film to make it more dramatic
0: i mean this film's unique because everything was like just as dramatic in real life as presented in the movie but you know things are edited to time the the phone call scene that you see in the film i think it plays at 10 minutes we were on the phone with this schmuck for an hour you know so you edit and and you naturally just snip and tuck and, and, and you know tidy up reality a little bit. And journalists, I think, aren't allowed to do that. I don't know what the journalism rules are. But. Well,
3: we certainly don't want to watch an hour of a phone call. Right. So. <laughs> yeah, we're going to edit. <laughs> Definitely going to edit. I saw it for the first time in uh, at the Double Exposure Film Festival in October. And the Russians in the audience were very upset with you for going back over this ground about the... Um, the Nazis and his oh, brain.
0: the Nazis.
3: Yes. Why do you keep bringing this up? You, know, you don't understand the Russian context.
0: Yeah, they, for they don't. They don't. The, his supporters get annoyed. So what we're referring to is this nationalism thing. I had to make a film about someone in two, 2023 who appeared at like a far right, Taylor weird rally, and put that in the movie and not get the movie canceled. Yeah. That was the, the biggest editorial feat of this entire mm-hmm. undertaking. Um, but of course we understood that we had to put this in the movie this was the biggest point of tension between us and team Navalny this was the crossroads when Maria pontificated it a, a year and a half before what happens if we want to take something out of the movie right. and I said we go my way we went my way and I I was unrelenting I wouldn't take it out I wouldn't alter it I wouldn't shorten it it had to be there and it's and it's you know I find that people, when they engage with that part of the story, it's like deeply uncomfortable. But weirdly, people are like, that makes me uncomfortable, but I understand why he has to do that. And that's sort of where my understanding of this falls. I'm not an expert on Russian domestic politics. I don't speak Russian. I'm very much a foreigner to this context. But essentially, to me, this boils down to the enemy of my enemy is, is my friend. And I think that's how Navalny would rationalize it, Um, but it's something that we need to be very, very weary of, because he's power hungry, he wants to be the president, I think he would do a great job, Um, but we must litigate these very uncomfortable tendencies from 10 or 15 or whatever it is, how many years ago?
3: You know, watching it this time, I'm watching it and I'm thinking, don't get on that plane, (laughs) don't get on that plane, don't go back. Um, You were on the plane with him,
0: I was not. I was. You were not. I was in, we had three units, four units okay. that night. There's two guys on the plane, a team in Berlin, team in Vienna, and a team on the ground in Russia.
3: Okay. Um, and where were you?
0: I was in Berlin.
3: You were in Berlin. Okay. When you looked at that footage? Uh, what uh, the another of the miracle.
0: I was like, it took, t- took a week for the guy, to sh- the shooter, to get us that footage, but when I saw it, I was like, uh, this is astounding, and he did an amazing job, and my marching orders to those guys was that if the flight, door-to-door, gate-to-gate, was four hours, they got to bring me three hours and 55 minutes Mm. of footage. Like, shoot everything, every sound, every announcement. I want it all. And they did an amazing job.
3: That scene where he's at the customs is absolutely amazing. Yes, question?
2: Hi, Daniel. Thank you so much for speaking with us today. This is truly an incredible film. Um, My question is, you mentioned that you don't speak Russian, but you had hours and hours of footage. And I assume much of it was in Russian. So what was the process of translating it and editing like?
0: Um, so, great question, Uh huge pain in the ass for my producers because I insisted on translating every single word, uh, which is uh, really expensive and annoying. So we literally had a team of translators like all over the world, but it took many, many months and probably cost hundreds of thousands of dollars and was very annoying for all of us. But I don't speak the language, so what are you going to do?
3: Thank you. Did your editor speak Russian?
0: We had one editor, our editor Alex, who was uh, our savior. I was thinking somebody had. Yeah, we had Russian. one Russian room. speaker.
3: Okay. Okay. Go ahead. Hi, Daniel. Thank you for this terrific movie. You mentioned that uh, at the time when you started filming it, you were not sure what it's going to be, and you saw it as an observational documentary. So, how did your idea change? I want to hear more about that.
0: So, when we started shooting the movie, we started shooting a procedural murder mystery. That was the, the whole conceit. It was about an investigation. We have Christo, the investigator. We have Maria, who's helping him. And we have Navalny, who's part of the investigation team investigating his own murder. That was the setup in the context. But what I also had in the back of my mind was this structure, this architecture, of Navalny is going to go back. So we have a very natural three-act structure to this movie. Who is this guy? He gets poisoned. There's a struggle to rescue him. He rehabilitates. He's sort of like like Samson. He is rejuvenated. And then he decides to go back. All of the other bits in the middle, like the phone call and and certain details like that, never could have been anticipated. These were gifts from the documentary gods. Thank you. Thank you. Just had a question. I don't know. Have you or any of your team like faced any sort of threats that were ser- very serious that he had to combat? And I was just wondering if anyone from any sort of, like, agency or government has contacted you? I don't know if you can speak to that. I assume the answer is likely no on the latter, but just wanted to ask that out of curiosity. Well, uh, I get anxious sometimes. Uh, it can be a bit scary when you're taking on a nation-state with the resources of the Russian government. Um, but for me, I think my risk assessment is minimal. Like Christo, on the other hand, is uh, very much in danger. We know that he is on uh, Putin's list. Um, and his life has been significantly altered as a result of that um, and it's uh, very very scary and unsettling and and um, uh, yeah so it's more like more like the Russian like people who helped out with this film probably well got Christo's Bulgarian, Bulgarian and he's Bulgarian. the first Sorry, okay. foreign national okay. to be put on russia's most wanted list um, and I didn't even speak to Navalny's colleagues of whom um you know, everyone has had to flee the country. Those that aren't arrested have had to flee the country. Maria, for example, is now in exile in Lithuania. Um, they've, their lives have been upended. They can't go home. Their families, in a lot of cases, have had to flee. So it's uh, really challenging for those people. But for us, you know, I made this film. You know, it has blown up my life in such extraordinary ways. You know, through this film, I my career has blown up. I met my wife. Uh, on the promotional tour of this movie it's just like every miracle, every blessing that could possibly happen to someone manifested in my life because of this film and the guilt I personally carry is that it's predicated on this guy who I care about being in this little cell languishing and that has been for me uh, uh, emotionally something I've really struggled with and has colored this experience very differently Uh, this has all been very very bitter for me in a lot of ways and if I'm not talking about Navalny, if, if I have to do an event that in some way doesn't further him or, or his plight or his cause or his name, uh, I won't do it um, because he is first and foremost every single day, and that's why we're doing this.
3: Thank you so much. Thanks, to everyone,
0: for coming. If anyone has any questions, I can linger around. We can chat more. But thank you for coming.
3: Thank you.
1: Thank you to Professor June Cross and DuPont award-winning director Daniel Rohr for that truly riveting conversation. And that, in fact, Lisa, was our very first film screening here at the Journalism School since the
2: pandemic started in 2020, if you can believe. Yeah, I was, I was a little rusty, it was, it was a bit touch and go, but in the end, I think it went really well and he was, he's a great interview. He's a great talker, he and, really is. And an astounding film. It's an astounding film.
1: Absolutely. We highly recommend that you watch this DuPont award-winning film. In fact, can people screen this film? It's on HBO Max. If you haven't seen it, see it. Um, And we are crossing our fingers uh, for Oscar for
2: the film. This episode of On Assignment was produced by our DuPont fellow, Jayu Yang, and it was audio engineered by our DuPont fellow, Jayu Yang. A twofer. Thank you, Jayu. Until next time.